I want to talk with you today about tithing. Tithing as it is purportedly taught in Matthew 23, 23 through 24. But before we get into it, I just want to add a little word of personal testimony here. I don't know that there's anything that has ever been more transformative for my personal Bible study, as well, of course, as my teaching, than to understand the Bible has its own covenantal and eschatological context. Now, don't let those two words scare you. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a a theologian to understand the concept of covenant. And as far as eschatology is concerned, that's just a fancy word that theologians use to mean studies of the end times. The eschaton is the end. That's all that means. End. And eschatology is the study of the end. How is God going to wrap all this up? How is he going to bring an end to human history and bring about the final judgment and uh, the new creation of a heaven, a new heaven and a new earth and the eternal state? That's eschatology. So the Bible has its own covenantal and eschatological context. Now, why that is so important is because without that context, you're really just flying blind. And as those who do fly blind, you're going to run into a couple of mountains, and it only takes one. I mean, there are mountains all over out there, and not just a couple. There's thousands of mountains. And if you're flying blind, you're going to fly into one of them. And uh, it's not going to be a pleasant experience, spiritually or mentally. So, um, and, and unfortunately, most Christians today have come to rely upon either a popular, charismatic, um, eloquent speaker to teach them, and upon them alone, or they have placed their trust in a theological system, a tradition that's been handed down to them throughout the uh, generations, and and they are not studying for themselves. And so, most popular, successful, charismatic uh, preachers today have an agenda. And it isn't to serve the interests of Jesus Christ in your life. It's to serve their own interests. And I must say that most theological systems, especially those who orig- that originated in Europe uh, post-Reformation, um, were developed under a state church system. And some very serious twisting and distortion of the gospel had to occur in order to adapt the gospel to a state church system. So, what I'm saying there, quite frankly, is that if if anything that's Anglican, anything that's Presbyterian, anything that is Lutheran, that uh, anything that is, quote, Reformed, end quote, that came out of Europe and was... Uh, exported and then imported, of course, into the United States and has developed as a theology, uh, that includes, by the way, Methodism, 
um, is really a theological system that was developed in order to survive under a church-state system and comply with the authorities. And so it's, it has a little twist to the gospel, each one of them. So today, the average Christian, again, has these choices. They can either turn on their TV or their radio or they sit in the, some big mega church or whatever and listen to some popular uh, a celebrity preacher um, give his take on the gospel. Or he or she can try to find refuge within a, a, a religious tradition, a um, theological system that will serve as a template for them to interpret Scripture. Or they can come to realize that, there, that the Bible interprets itself. God has included within his own t- scripture the ability for scripture to interpret scripture. The Bible has its own covenantal and eschatological context. Very important to understand. Uh, or, or, as I say, you're going to be simply relying upon those other uh aspects, uh, these these preachers, these systems, and these traditions, to tell you what the Bible says. And that is dangerous. It is precarious. And uh, because it, you're flying blind, and these are blind guides. Folks, just because it came out of the Reformation doesn't mean that it's all good. I mean, Luther was not... Uh, infallible, neither was Calvin, neither was Zwingli, neither was John Wesley. I mean, the Reformation truly, theologically, was a um, failed revival. Many good things came out of the Reformation. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we have to learn to be able to to live with the, the balance, right? We have to live with the tension that some good things can come out of something and still you don't have to buy it hook, line, sinker. We need to use critical thought. We need to exercise critical thought in all that we do and think. And when it comes to the Reformation, it got off to a good start. Luther was right to, to reclaim the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. Uh, and in his f- work on our behalf, and his righteousness alone, to reclaim the supreme authority of Scripture, as opposed to popes and councils. And so there were some good things, but ultimately all the Reformers had to comply, including John Knox later on in Scotland with his Presbyterian form of government and so on, had to comply with the state church. And they had to trim and adapt the gospel to fit that. And consequently, when you are hearing someone teach with that background, what you're hearing is a form of the gospel, a version of the gospel. What you're not hearing, and please hear me now, what you're not hearing and what you're not going to hear is the whole counsel of God. So I'm very jealous 
for you. I'm very jealous for the Lord's word. And and the Bible does have its own covenantal and eschatological context, and it's essential that you learn what that means. Now, um, that that has been the difference in my life, in my studies, in my personal transformation, and that of our family as well, my family. And so, um, when I say covenantal, I mean that there's there's a, um, a covenantal structure to the whole Bible. Uh, there's the uh, of course, these, the covenant of Noah, which was not a redemptive covenant, but Abraham's covenant, the covenant of uh, of the um, nation of Israel at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, and then there was the Davidic covenant that God made with D- David. And those were covenants that were all summed up and fulfilled in the new covenant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For centuries, we have been printing on the front page of the New Testament, the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we would have done well to have rather said testament to have said covenant, the new covenant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we made that distinction within the pages of our Bibles that there was an end to the Old Covenant and a beginning to the New Covenant. And we even, in a literary fashion, we, we made that division in the, the, the Bible itself. But we failed to make it in our theology. And we convoluted the old and the new. And so, uh, and the, the Presbyterians and the Reformed, uh, at, not long after the Reformation had begun, Ulrich Zwingli was the first to come up with this convoluted form of, of theology that was um, uh, really a, they had to, to develop a, a man-made, fabricated covenant of grace instead of a biblical covenant the ones that i just mentioned the abrahamic the mosaic the davidic as all being fulfilled in jesus in the new covenant in his new covenant that by the way he consecrated with his own blood and the spirit affirmed at pentecost instead of that they have taken a uh mindset that they could find somewhere in Genesis uh, after the fall that God made some kind of a covenant of grace, which is nowhere to be found in that text in Genesis, with uh, humanity. And that covenant of grace has, it serves as an overarching umbrella over all other biblical covenants, so that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are simply mere administrations of the of their covenant of grace. Consequently, the New Covenant isn't, isn't anything really new at all to them. It is a, it's simply a, a, a revamping of the Old Covenant. Therefore, they can pull things from the Old Covenant and convolute it into the new covenant, and pour new wine into old wineskins, and then hand that to you and say, here's the gospel. And one of the favorite things that they do 
is they teach Matthew 23, 23 through 24 as a proof text that Jesus taught tithing. Now, if you're in any Reformed or Presbyterian church, or you're in any Evangelical church that's come under a Reformed influence, or if you're in a hyper-charismatic church today, you will hear this text, Matthew 23, 23-24, proof text to teach tithing. They will say to you that Jesus taught tithing. Now, let me give you an example of this. I want to give you a clip here. This is Robert Morris, one of the more popular charlatans in the world today. And here he is teaching this very thing. Let me just play this for you real quick here. Motel room. A Jake's Motel, room 12. Uh, they didn't allow pets. Uh, but they had roaches instead. <laughs> Jake's Motel Room 12. They only had 13 rooms, and I thought 13 was unlucky. I got saved in that motel room. Out of drugs. And out of being in and out of jail. So if Jesus said that you ought to tithe, that's enough for me right there. That settles it right there for me. And that's Matthew 23, 23, if you want to look it up later. Okay, but here's, here's the thing. People talk bad about the tithe. Please let me give you a little different perspective. <laughs> Jesus is God's tithe. Jesus is God's tithe. That's the kind of thing that gets taught weekly throughout the West, throughout Western Christianity. That's the kind of logic, that's the kind of reason, that's the kind of charlatanism that not only is he uh, twisting Matthew 23, 23 to say that Jesus taught tithing, he's going to come up with some seemingly profound insight that Jesus himself is God's tithe. And you ho I hopefully you heard the crowd in the background go, whoa, and it's a big, profound thing. And people applaud, and they uh, approve of this. That's the problem. Now, let me just give you a few points here, several points, to explain what I want to say with you today on this note. First of all, in Acts chapter 17 there was this group of people called the Bereans. Obviously, they were from Berea. <laughs> and the Bereans were a noble people in the book of Acts who listened to Paul's preaching and then went home and searched the scriptures to verify his claims. So if the Bereans had just heard Robert Morris say what he said, they would go home and search the scriptures within its own covenantal and eschatological context, and they would have determined whether or not what Robert Morris was saying is true. But as it is, this man was speaking to thousands, maybe as many as eight or 10,000 people in that room, who very few of them, I would think, 
went home and opened their Bibles, got a concordance, and began to study that text to see if, in fact, Jesus was teaching tithing there. Not to mention whether or not anywhere it says that God uh, treated Jesus as his tithe. To him. I mean, God, Jesus is God's tithe? I think where he's going with that is he's, he's going to say, God gave his very best. And that's what we should give to God too. God gave his very best by giving us his son. And we are being tested as to whether or not we will put him first and give him our very best by giving 10% of his gross income. Our gross income. That, that's probably where he's going with that. I mean, folks, if it wasn't so shameful, it would be laughable. But there's nothing funny about it at all. Because this kind of teaching destroys people every day of the week. As a pastoral counselor, I have a unique vantage point. I have people come walking in my front door with their lives and marriages and families and mental and spiritual health in a train wreck wrapped up in all kinds of cords and bondage that they have taken on by false teachers and preachers for a short time or for decades, and maybe they're in the third or fourth generation of some of this kind of nonsense. And God bless them, their lives are train wrecks as a result. Bad theology is not benign. Bad theology destroys people. It just, that's a simple fact. The truth sets us free and the lie kills us. So this is no joke. This is, we're in a shooting war here, folks, as a man once said. So back to the Bereans. The Bereans were these people in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, 10 through 12, who would listen to Paul's preaching and then go home and search the scriptures to verify his claims. And nowhere did Paul say, whoa, 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 you shouldn't be doing that. I'm an apostle. You should just trust me. No. The writer of Acts, Luke, is, by the Holy Spirit, is commending this practice. Now, tragically, the average American Christian is an anti-Berean. And I say that with all due kindness and respect and affection. The average American Christian is an anti-Berean. They are neither noble, nor do they search the scriptures to verify what they are taught, but simply accept what nearly any popular, successful preacher teaches. They often applaud these teachers, as these teachers exploit, abuse, and lie to them for the sake of financial gain. So what we have going on in most churches, especially megachurches, is financial extraction grounded in a lie and not new covenant cheerful giving. And so, um, one of the most popular verses used by these charlatans today is Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. Uh, some of you may recall that that is a chapter where um, Luke is recording that Jesus is engaging the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
and he's cursing them. He's not trying to find common ground. He's not trying to find uh, a place where they can coexist and some kind of ecumenical standard for them. Rather, Jesus is cursing these men and their religious practices. And in verse 23, which is the subject of our topic today, Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. End quote. Well, is Jesus teaching tithing there? You heard Robert Morris say, well, uh, that's Matthew 23, by the way. Uh, uh, go ahead and look it up for yourself at home. And I've heard many other preachers. You know, one of the benefits of being 67 years old <laughs> and having been in the church for almost 50 years now um, is that I've just been around the block a few times. I, I've, I, I've, I've lost most of my naivete, uh, and, though I, and I've done it without becoming cynical about the gospel, um, or even having my faith too wounded. Um, but I, my point is, is that I've, I've come to understand that these things just go on. I grew up in a tradition where this kind of thing was taught regularly. So, um, so like all, I, instead of understanding these things, what these teachers will not tell you is that this text, like all Bible, Bible texts, comes within its context. There's an, a covenantal, what's those two words? Covenantal and eschatological context. So Morris says Jesus is teaching tithing here, and he tells you to look it up for yourself. Now, the, what he will not do is ever tell his people how to read that text properly, because that would mean that he was actually a pastor <laughs> instead of a huckster. <laughs> and I know, sadly, these days that those two terms are almost synonymous, but not every pastor is a huckster. Morris is a huckster, and he will never tell you how to read that text properly. Neither will most pastors today. Some are simply ignorant. They're just misguided themselves. Others are truly charlatans. They know what they're doing, and they're doing it without shame. So let's look at that text for a few minutes. First, we must always consider the context, the immediate and the overall context. The immediate context in Matthew 23 is Jesus pronouncing a divine curse upon the Pharisees and their religious practices. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now, does this sound like Jesus is concerned about tithing in this text? Is this Jesus commending and affirming tithing 
for his apostles and for his coming church? Or is Jesus concerned with the hypocritical religious practices of the Pharisees and teachers of the law? Jesus here, it's, it's the latter. Jesus is concerned primarily with the hypocritical religious practices of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, these men were very exacting regarding their tithe practice, but cared little for the spirit of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Their depraved minds and hearts would not allow for justice, mercy, and faithfulness. However, their depraved, unregenerate minds and hearts would allow for a religious impulse that emphasized tithing at the expense of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And that's what Jesus is cursing. Now, Jesus does say, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You should have tithed very precisely. You should have been as precise in practicing the spirit of the law as you are the letter of the law. So he's not condemning the fact that they tithe. So let's look at the second point then. And that is that the overall context, Jesus is at this point a Jew under the law himself. Jesus is under the old covenant law at this point, as was, of course, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to whom he is speaking. And Precision tithing was commanded under the Old Covenant. Leviticus 27, 30-33 and Malachi 3, 8-12. So, in this context, yes, Jesus is affirming the tithe under the pains of divine cursing for the failure to do so. Just as he would have said about any of the 160-something laws under the Old Covenant. And if we are to take this teaching as applicable to those in Christ, and please hear me now, then consistency would require that we do the same for all the Old Covenant laws. All of them. And we must obey fully the smallest letter or stroke of a pen pen apart from faith under the pain of the curse of Deuteronomy 27:26 So if we're going to we we don't get to pick and choose which of God's laws we want to obey If we want to place ourselves under law and we want to try to find acceptance with God in our daily practice of our Christian life based upon law, we don't get to just say, well, there's ceremonial or there's civil and then there's moral law and I'm only concerned with the moral law. No. No, 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 no. no. We, if you're going to take the law, you're going to take it in its whole. That's what Paul teaches in Galatians. He said, you who want to be under law, don't you realize you have to obey the whole thing? And Jesus said, no jot nor tittle will go unfulfilled. 
So anyone who teaches you that you have to obey part of the law, but not the other part of the law, uh, run. Don't walk away from them. So what we understand in the covenantal aspect here is that Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. If you don't obey the law perfectly, you're under a curse. And that was a problem. Because guess what? A depraved mind and a depraved heart, no matter how hard that tries, cannot keep the law. And so the Jews were under a curse. And anyone within humanity who attempted to come to God on the basis of his law was going to find themselves under a curse because they could not keep it. Not for a moment. Now, there were those who deluded themselves and and found that they could set forth a practice in a way where even Paul says in Philippians 3 that he was blameless under the law. But to be blameless under the law just means, just means you, you checked all the boxes. It doesn't mean that you were acceptable to God. You just kept all the rules. But even that's a delusion. And so, we don't come to God on the basis of law because there's a curse of the law. Jesus, if we could come to God on the basis of law, then Jesus died for nothing. But we could not reconcile ourselves to God on the basis of law. So Jesus reconciled us through the death of the cross. He took the curse that was intended for us. Let's see Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. So those modern teachers and systematic theologians who bring forth the old covenant law to weigh upon your shoulders and thus ignore the sufficiency of the cross, as well as ignoring the institution of the new covenant consecrated in his blood and inaugurated at Pentecost, are putting you in a very precarious place before God. To them, to these teachers who do this, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, except, see, and that's where it always goes, except, I've had elders and pastors tell me, well, yeah, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, but not the whole law. I mean, he, I mean the, the, the law still stands. <laughs> um, <clears throat> by the way, let me uh, read that text in Galatians to you, just just to reinforce what I'm saying. Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That's clear enough, isn't it? As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, Paul says because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. This is the apostles' words, by the way. These aren't mine. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. 
The problem was no one could do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. End quote. Do you realize that the gift of the Spirit is your experiential uh, affirmation, confirmation that you are in Christ and that you are accepted before the Father? The gift of the Spirit is what marks us out today. The Spirit has written the law in our hearts and minds so that we, unlike the Pharisees, are emphasizing justice, mercy, and faithfulness in our behavior, the love of neighbor and the love of God, and it comes from our hearts, not through some religious checklist. So, the central point then of Matthew twenty three twenty three is not to affirm tithing. A simple contextual study will reveal that. Rather, it is to warn of the divine curse upon superficial, hypocritical religion as practiced by the blind guides who, quote, strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. In other words, it is to warn those then and now of such a cursed religion. That's the point of the text. See, that's the other thing. When you are getting the wrong, when that text is being twisted and perverted and distorted to say one thing, it's a double loss because you're, 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 you're being told a lie and you're evading the truth. You're, you're not getting the truth and the blessing of the truth of that text. So that the, the point of the text is to warn those then and now of the, such accursed, superficial, hypocritical religious practices. And this is how these modern teachers should read and obey this text, and not <clears throat> as Jesus affirming tithing upon the new covenant church. Now let me conclude with this thought. The greater concern for me in this lesson is that Christians be taught to read the Bible well. And that means that we learn to read it contextually. It's okay for you to get a Bible verse every morning. It's okay for you to read a devotional if you want to. But don't let your reading stop there. You have to engage the text as it was intended to be engaged. Can you imagine a friend who's living quite a ways away from another beloved friend, another part of the world, and sits down to write a long letter sharing their life and their comings and goings and their joys and their sorrows with this beloved friend. 
Mailing that letter, it arrives at the desk of the new the friend at the other part of the world, and that person opens it and reads one line of it. Is it would that be the intention? <laughs> would that or maybe even a paragraph of it? Would he be able to get the full benefit of what his friend was saying to him from the other part of the world? Not at all. It would be sad. It would be tragic. Rather, a good friend would receive a letter like that, open it, and anxiously read the whole thing. Maybe highlighting a few points. And sit back and consider what he just heard from his friend. But still, we'll take the Bible like that. We'll take the Bible, open it up, and read one passage. Or maybe a paragraph. And think we got the whole thing. How many of us, really, can we admit, have ever read any letter of the New Testament from start to finish? I hope you have. And if you haven't, today is a good day to do it. Because that's where you start. But remember, too, that there's a covenantal and eschatological context in the Bible. There's many good men and women working hard on the scholarly level in some of our better seminaries to recapture biblical theology and to expose and dismiss and put away systematic theologies that impose their agenda on the text. Rather, the work today is to be able to let the text say what it says within its own context. We want biblical theology, not historic theology. Not European theology. Not the theology of the state church. So, the covenantal and eschatological context. When I say eschatological, I just mean that God has an eschatological context in Scripture, which means that he has taken the end result, the end judgment, and and or acceptance. He accepts the righteous and he condemns the wicked. He has brought that judgment into human history at the cross so that the judgment of humanity as well as the atonement for humanity was occurred at the cross. And with the resurrection, God proclaimed to the world that Jesus Christ is truly who he said he was. He is the new standard for humanity. And after his ascension to the Father and the outpouring of the Spirit, that the new covenant age, the new creation, and the new era of the future kingdom has invaded the present. The future has invaded the present so that today the end is already at work in our lives as evidenced, and hear me now, by the Spirit so that we are in a now and not yet status. That's what I mean by eschatological context. We no longer belong to this present evil age. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is Paul proclaiming the eschatological context of 
the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The new creation uh, talked about in Revelation 21 has already begun in you. You belong to a new creation, not this old creation. You belong to the age to come being worked out in the present in by the power of the Spirit, not the present evil age. Galatians 1 is clear that Jesus died to free us from this present evil age. So that's what I mean by eschatological context. You are an eschatological being. You don't belong to this age. You don't belong under the law. You are under grace, under by the Spirit. So, let me just repeat, and then I'll close. The greater concern for me in this lesson is that Christians be taught to read the Bible well, that is, within its own covenantal and eschatological context, and under the guidance of the Spirit of Truth. No Christian should simply accept what any teacher says without affirming that teaching by their own contextual study. And I am confident that that applies to me as well. <laughs> so, if, you know, take Matthew 23 and, uh, 23 and look at it for yourself. Read it within its covenantal and eschatological context, and you'll soon discover, especially if you read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in response to new covenant giving, that you'll soon discover that that text does not teach Jesus affirming tithing. Amen.